Friends, good morning. Let me get this on up back here. Friends, good morning and welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio and I'm one of the ministers here. And we're delighted that you're with us on this July 4th weekend as we gather together for Sunday school. For those of you who have been with us this summer, you know that our custom here at First Pres uh, is to have all of our Sunday school classes take a pause during the summer month, knowing that many of us travel and are away at various points, and we all come together for a church-wide series, and that's what this is. It's a, church, it's a nine-week church-wide series that we're calling Great Figures of the Old Testament. And what we do each week is we revisit the stories of some of the most prominent figures in all of the Old Testament. We've looked at Adam and Eve, of course, and Cain and Abel. Uh, we've looked at Abraham and Sarah and then also Hagar and Ishmael. And each time, our, our goal is to just reacquaint ourselves with these stories, in part because they're so complex. Uh, we often forget many of their details. But as we, do, as we do so, we reflect on how these stories, as ancient as they might be, still speak to the community of faith today. We notice how their theologies and themes still resonate with things we care about in our faith, in our world. And so we've gone on this journey. If you've missed any of the weeks so far, you can catch reruns and archived copies of all of the previous lessons. You can either subscribe to First Pres ATL on iTunes, and then you'll get all of our sermons and Sunday School lessons automatically downloaded to your iPhone, tablet, or computer. Or you can go online to the Learn link on our home site and look at Sunday School curriculum. And there you can also find all of the slides for our previous classes as well as the audio content. This week, uh, there's a, a, a we have a, a guest teacher. I've taught the first four lessons of this week, but this week we have a guest teacher that I'm very excited about. And I assume because we have a guest teacher that the room is overflowing. Had it been me, I think there would have been like a few people on these front rows perhaps. But uh, our guest teacher today is Christopher Holmes, who is a Louisville postdoc fellow and a visiting professor of New Testament at McAfee School of Theology. Uh, Chris comes from Colorado Springs, Colorado. He did his uh, undergraduate work at Whitworth University, uh, where he was a dual major in religion and Spanish. Uh, from there, Chris got his MDiv at Princeton Theological Seminary, where we met and lived just a couple uh, houses down from one another at that place. And then uh, Chris, from, after getting his MDiv at Princeton Seminary, Chris uh, went to Emory University, where he got his PhD in New Testament. Uh, Chris is a good friend of mine. He's a wonderful teacher and a great scholar. His research interests include the book of Hebrews, New Testament theology, and the history of New Testament interpretation. Chris uh, uh, has two kids, Micah and Darcy, and so if he looks tired at any point this morning, I would assume it has something to do with two kids. That's usually why I look tired uh, in the morning. Uh, Chris, also like me, is a recovering college athlete. Chris was a swimmer. Uh, and an, uh, an inconsistent viewer of college football and college basketball. So Chris, again, and I have a lot in common, although I'm not nearly as good looking as he is. So there's, there's some differences. Chris is married to Janelle. Janelle is an ordained PCUSA minister who's just beginning a new church plant in Ormwood Park and is excited about that new ministry venture. So we are very glad to have Chris with us this morning. Even though Chris is a New Testament scholar, he's agreed to teach on that big, long preface to the New Testament that we call the Old Testament. So Chris, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you, Ryan. Uh, I'm wondering where you had all those notes. Um, then I'm also worried that you know all of that about me. Um, 
And uh, as is fitting, I'm following in Ryan's wake, uh, as always. He's blazing the trail for me. Uh, And uh, where I come from, we like to refer to the New Testament as the appendix to the Old Testament, right, Ryan? Um, So, yeah, so I'm talking on Joseph, uh, the Joseph narrative from the book of Genesis. And as Ryan said, I'm not a Hebrew Bible scholar. Um, I've actually never seen Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, and so if you would like to leave now, uh, that's, I perfectly understand why you'd want to do that. Um, and so as is the case, uh, since Ryan likes to do this, I thought I would do it too. Uh, I'll give you about 15 seconds to look at a few quiz questions. Uh, you can turn to your tables or some partners and try to figure out the answers. Uh, so the first one, kind of easy, right? Who is Joseph's father? Is it Abraham, Isaac, Esau, or Jacob, and discuss. Lots of silence, good. Yes, yes, we have one suggestion. Jacob, who says Jacob, hands? Okay, see, that was pretty easy, right? Okay, so Jacob is uh, Joseph's father. Uh, That is correct, okay? Let's see if we can get a bit of a trickier one. Who's Joseph's mother? Is it Leah, Zippah, Bilhah, or Rachel? Ryan, are these spelled correctly? You didn't spell, yeah, more or less. Close enough. It, I don't do it, you know. It's... Okay, hold on, discuss. You've, you've already given us one answer. Let's see if anybody else out here has a no. Rachel. Uh, Rachel is correct. And... If you know the the story in the Pentateuch, you know that Rachel was Jacob's favorite. He was the person he was hoping to marry, and he got tricked into marrying Leah, uh, and so he had to end up marrying both of them. And of course, uh, to make matters worse, Leah had lots of babies before Rachel did. Um, She was barren for a long time. And uh, uh, the text says that Rachel was barren until the Lord intervened and opened up her womb, and she had Joseph. So uh, she is, uh, or uh, Joseph is Rachel's firstborn uh, son. All right, another question. Joseph was the, fill in the blank, responsible eldest son, the resentful middle son, the spoiled youngest son, or the despised redheaded stepson? The spoiled youngest son, of course, right? Uh, But it's kind of complicated, right? Uh, And this is uh, the very complex family tree that is uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Uh, Here is Jacob with his four wives. That's right, four. I have one, plenty. Um, But you can see that he's, Joseph here is the youngest, but only for a time. Uh, And then Benjamin is born as well, also a, a son of of Rachel, and so he's, he's the youngest for a part, uh, which I think those are those, if, if you've ever been that child in the birth order, uh, you sort of have a grudge, right? You were the baby for a while, and then the oops baby came, um, and no more, the favorite uh, child. Okay, and then uh, last but not least, in his lifetime, Joseph faced lions and tigers and bears, oh no, Forced exile, imprisonment in a fiery furnace, slavery, false accusation, and imprisonment, a father's favoritism, management, and being second in command. What do you all 
thing. C, and D. Oh, you guys have been cheating. You must have seen this before. Uh, C and D, right? And uh, in, a, in a short uh, sort of way, this describes the, the story of Joseph, right? That he experienced both tremendous hardship and uh, tremendous highs, uh, tremendous success in uh, a number of ways. And so uh, those two uh, sort of get at that uh, cycle of his life. So briefly, uh, the overview of the story of Joseph uh, Here you can see many of the scenes in a children's cartoon that you can find on YouTube. Um, I have not viewed that either. Um, But the the Joseph story is uh, what people like Ryan would say uh, is a novella. Um, It's it's more developed than a folk story. Um, It has more twists and turns. And uh, the way that uh, a scholar or scholars would talk about a novella, it would suggest that there is some, some artisanship going on, that the author has a, a story to tell, um, rather than sort of just compiling a, a bunch of fragments of a story. Uh, the author maybe has a purpose, and the author is bringing together these different stories and episodes that we'll talk about a few of them uh, today. And there is this emphasis not just on what happened in the past um, with Joseph, but sort of how what happened to Joseph is true of all of us. Um, and so you can see some of how the novella is crafted in that way, that it, it, it has a timeless quality to it. Um, for the most part, the story of Joseph can be found in Genesis 37 through 50. Uh, there's a few interruptions. Um, uh, chapter 38 really doesn't have to do with jo- uh, Joseph at all. Um, and you can basically ba- break this up into three parts. Uh, The first is Genesis 37, family strife and slavery. Uh, Genesis 31 through 41, uh, I'm titling the uh, ideal administrator. This is perhaps a distinct unit uh, that maybe existed and that has been integrated into the larger story. And then uh, Genesis 42 through 50 is when we have reconciliation and relocation. And you can see that the bulk of the story actually focuses on this This concept of reconciliation. A lot of work goes into reconciling uh, that family strife that we see in the first part. So uh, if briefly, if you would turn to a partner or your tables, um, what's one word you would use to describe Joseph and why? Uh, Any word would do, but you have to have a why. And so discuss maybe for Uh, let's say three minutes, uh, if there's some brave souls that we'll discuss with each other. And I'll take a couple of examples after that. Yes, you've been voluntold. Insightful. Insightful. Because okay. Because he interpreted the 
in Pharaoh's dream. Yes. And at the end, my favorite verse, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. That's a profound insight. Yeah. So I think he's insightful. Great. Great. If we get enough of these, we can leave early. Um, okay? I won't have anything to teach on. Others? Actually, plucky. Plucky. What does that word mean? Plucky. <laughs> Hardship came out on top. Okay, he endured hardship and came out on top. Not what I thought plucky would mean at all. Um, you learn a new word every day. Resilient. That's the, I know that word. Thank you. We're coming down to my level. Others, maybe one or two more. Resilient and insightful. Right here. Yes. Leader. He, a he leader. is a slave and ends up the yes, yes. I would imagine there are some books that have been written about leadership after Joseph's style, um, or something like that. Yes, uh, at Barnes and Noble. <laughs> One more, maybe leadership. God fearing. God fearing. Okay. And is there a why? Great, so we're getting all of these snippets, and they're all, uh, they're all true. And in fact, we could probably, after this, do this again, and we could see that there are a number of words that we could use to describe Joseph. Um, uh, some that, that uh, are, are true of one part of his life and maybe less true of other parts of his life. And so that, that sort of emphasizes the complexity of his character and the complexity of his story. Yes, ma'am. Amazingly forgiving, yes, yes, he gets there, right? Um, uh, and uh, yeah, if I had been, well, we'll get there. We'll, we'll, we, I don't want to spoil it, right? Um, all right, so we're going to keep some of these, uh, these words in mind. So the first part of the story, uh, mostly in Genesis 37, is about family strife and slavery. And I'm not sure uh, how much Ryan has touched on this in, in previous lessons, but in much of Genesis, the theme of family strife sort of is present, right? Hagar and Sarah, uh, Isaac and uh, Esau. Nope, see, I'm going to mix them up. You, you, you all know, people don't get along in Genesis. Um, and if I'm put on the spot, I'm going to get it wrong. And, but Ryan's not here, so I can get it wrong. Um, anyways, uh, so, so that's a major theme in the Joseph story, right? Joseph has tremendous strife with his brothers. And so it begins with uh, Joseph being the beloved youngest son, the son that comes to a father in his old age, that comes to a mother previously barren, uh, who now gets the joy and uh, uh, life experience of being a mother. And so Genesis uh, opens this way. Genesis 37 opens this way. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Right then, it moves into Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So one of the things uh, that we didn't uh, bring out as an adjective or a word to describe 
Joseph would have something to do with brought a bad report. Uh, in my family, we call this tattletaling. Um, but perhaps there's another thing. Joseph uh, is uh, definitely loved by his dad and mom, uh, but he's also not doing the best he can to be friends with his older siblings, right? Uh, whatever this bad report is. Um, but we see that Israel loves Joseph more than any of the sons, and as a result of this, uh, his brothers hate him uh, and envy him tremendously. So then we see uh, this is an image of the two dreams uh, that Joseph sees uh, at night, and he has the audacity to tell them to his older brothers and his father, right? Uh, one is of these seven sheaves of wheat or some other plant, uh, and then uh, the moon and these seven stars that sort of collect around uh, the, the, the moon. Um, and so uh, the two dreams occur in Genesis 37, 5 through 11. Uh, the plants is, is seen and then recounted in verses 5 through 8. The planets or the whatever they are, the stars in verses 9 through 11. And the result, uh, of, co of course, of these dreams is that his brothers have even more cause to hate him, right? Um, without him interpreting them, his brothers interpret them, which they say, oh, so you think we're going to come and worship you? You think that you're going to lead us, right? You think you're going to be greater than us? Well, you're a little haughty for your, yourself. Let's, let's put this kid back in his place. Um, and so the strife continues as a result of these dreams. Um, and in fact, uh, his own father is a part of that second dream cycle and says, surely I won't uh, come and pay homage to you. I'm your father. Uh, and so uh, we could say that Joseph's dreams and his telling them to his brothers uh, could at least use a little more tact. Um, if, if, if he's not arrogant or haughty, at least uh, he could be a little bit more tactful in his delivery. And then uh, this is the, an image of, of the, the tunic here that has been uh, dipped in uh, the blood of an animal uh, to suggest to Joseph's father that uh, Joseph has been killed by wild animals in the desert, uh, right? This is the betrayal. Um, and so uh, this is one of those more complicated parts in the story if you really dig into it. Uh, you see that originally they planned to kill him. Just let's get rid of him. Uh, uh, and then Reuben sort of intercedes and says, no, let's just throw him into a pit, um, which I'm not sure if that's a better solution, uh, but perhaps it absolves them of responsibility. Like if he starves to death, it's not totally our fault. We didn't kill him, we just threw him in a pit, Mom. Um, uh, makes sense. Uh, but then Judah, his brother, says, no, let's sell him. Uh, we can make some money from him. Uh, we can sell him to these traders, uh, sell him into slavery, and take home some money. That happens in verses 25 through 28. And then in verses 31 through 35, they return this bloody robe to their father and say, he's dead. Your youngest beloved son is dead. And of course, uh, uh, Israel or Jacob is distraught, uh, beside himself with, with grief. Um, and so that's the, the way that Joseph's story starts, uh, with uh, tremendous strife and uh, uh, Joseph being sold into slavery. Eventually, he becomes a slave in Potiphar's house in Egypt, right? Um, and so this begins uh, 
the second cycle in the Joseph story, which is about the ideal administrator. And so uh, in Genesis 39 through 41, Joseph is the administrator in three distinct contexts. And uh, each is represented by these images. Um, and in each case, in each context, uh, he encounters hardship and he encounters tremendous uh, opportunities to lead. Um, and so each one sort of proves his character as he goes along uh, and his uh, fitness for administration. So the first of these uh, is in Potiphar's house, right? This is the image of Potiphar's wife uh, sort of trying to seduce Joseph, right? Um, and she's unsuccessful, as we heard. Um, and so this text says, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. So his master made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And so we see slavery leads to him being sort of in charge of all of Potiphar's house. And then, unfortunately, he faces this challenge of being falsely accused of, of raping Potiphar's wife. Um, Potiphar uh, uh, throws him into prison. Uh, and some of the, the later interpreters of this story uh, want to read in between the lines of the text and say, well, the reason that he didn't just kill him out and out, which he could have because of, because of rape and adultery, uh, is that he sort of believed Joseph and so just sent him to prison um, as a sort of lesser punishment. Um, but so Joseph faces the, the ordeal of going to prison now after being enslaved by his brothers. And here in Potiphar's house, he shows himself to be somebody who has tremendous self-control. Um, uh, later interpreters take the Potiphar incident, uh, the incident with Potiphar's wife, and say, here is a person with uh, utmost uh, self-control and uh, purity of heart. Uh, but he also shows that he has a very hard worker, right, by becoming chief over Potiphar's house before his fall. And so as a result of the false accusation, he gets uh, imprisoned and obviously faces um, the challenges of being in prison, but eventually he works himself up again. Uh, we can see from the bottom to the top, uh, and the, 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 basically the chief jailer gives him control over all of the other prisoners. Uh, so he's leading, he's administering, he's, he's managing all of the other prisoners. And in this story, as we heard, he demonstrates his knowledge and insight. Uh, because he's able to interpret these two dreams, uh, one from Pharaoh's baker and one from Pharaoh's cupbearer, right? And if you know the story, um, it results well for the baker. His dream suggests that he's going to be redeemed and eventually let out of prison. And so the cupbearer thinks, oh, good, this worked out for the baker. I'll tell my story uh, to, the, to this dream interpreter. And, of course, the cupbearer's uh, story is less, uh, less happy. Uh, he, he ends up getting killed, um, and that's what the dream portends. Um, and then in the, the third incident, um, because of his ability to interpret these dreams in prison, um, Joseph is actually forgotten by the baker. The baker says, I'll remember you forever, and the baker, in fact, forgets him. And so he finds himself once again in prison, sort of at the bottom of the bottom. And Pharaoh then has these troubling dreams, and all of a sudden, the baker thinks, oh, I know a guy uh, who can help you with this. And Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh and eventually uh, makes his way up to the top in Pharaoh's court. And so he's basically second in command to Pharaoh. As a result of his tremendous wisdom and insight, 
um, for interpreting these dreams. And he sets him over all of Egypt, sort of as his minister of agriculture, right? That he controls uh, the, the, the grain and the meat uh, as Egypt and the surrounding areas face a tremendous famine. And so in many ways, Joseph's leadership is what gets the people of Egypt and eventually his family uh, through this tremendous famine. Um, and so we can see this sort of cycle of from, be, from being at the very bottom to being at the top, bottom to top, bottom to top. And throughout, uh, in this, this section of Genesis 39 through 41, the, authors, the author is emphasizing that uh, Joseph is a very faithful person. Uh, he does not lose his faith in God in the process. Um, and uh, also is characteristically one who endures struggle. Uh, he faces struggle with uh, a sort of uh, rigorous fidelity um, in God and in his ability to get through it. So uh, one of the sort of the afterlives of Joseph's text that I'd like for us to think about this morning um, comes from the uh, Jewish philosopher and exegete or interpreter of scripture, Philo of Alexandria, um, who has written a tremendous amount on the Pentateuch. Um, and his uh, life of Joseph is one of his little books that he devotes to the life of Joseph. And uh, Joseph is uh, the story of the, the statesman, the, the political beast, uh, the person who manages things, according to Philo. And so as Philo tells this story, he retells the story of Joseph, and he sort of alternates between more or less literal interpretation of the text from Genesis and then an allegorical interpretation. And so what he does with allegorical is, is ultimately he's trying to draw out the lessons that Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt in the first century CE might take away from the story. And so he tends to um, expand upon the story of Joseph. He tends to make explanations and corrections. Um, but above all, he tries to make applications. How does this story apply to our life? Um, for Philo, Joseph is the fourth of the wise men that Philo writes an entire book for each. Um, unfortunately, we only have Abraham and Joseph as the lives of Isaac and Jacob have been lost. But we, we know from Philo's larger writings that he's attended to these. Um, and so... One of the things that, that I found in reading the Philo's life of Joseph is the, the, the two qualities that, that, uh, that Philo carries out for, for Joseph. One is his ability to endure, right? So um, Joseph is the model uh, philosopher, the model wise man, who is willing to endure all sorts of hard things in order to become a more virtuous person. Um, this includes things like resisting uh, the temptation of uh, Potiphar's wife, um, and then the second is the, the degree to which all of Joseph's life experiences sort of prepare him to be second in command to, Egypt, to, to Pharaoh in Egypt. And so uh, he, Philo sees the whole life sort of moving towards the administration in Egypt. And it begins uh, uh, for Philo not in uh, Potiphar's house, but actually that, Philo, that Joseph was a, was a shepherd. Um, because all good sort of household administrators start out as shepherds, Philo says. And so at the very end of this book on Joseph, uh, Philo comments, he died in a goodly age, having lived 110 years, 
unsurpassed in comeliness, wisdom, and power of language. And so these three sort of virtues of Joseph relate to uh, his attractiveness, right? Uh, uh, Philo sees in Potiphar's uh, wives sort of uh, passes at, at Joseph that he was a physically attractive human being. Um, in his wisdom and his ability to sort of administer households and administer Pharaoh's kingdom, um, and then also his use of language, he ties to his ability to interpret dreams. Um, so <clears throat> the end of the story here uh, is reconciliation and relocation. This is an image uh, entitled Joseph and His Brethren by the artist Joseph Tissot. Um, and you can see that Joseph is here sitting exalted above his brothers who have come and have surrounded him uh, because they've made their trip from, uh, from, from the land of Canaan to Egypt to seek grain, right? And so um, this is the, the reconciliation happens in a number of parts. Again, a very complex part of the story that seems to repeat itself and double back on itself a little bit. But the broad brushstrokes are, brothers go back to Egypt to get grain. Uh, they are sent by Jacob to this, to this you know, administer in Egypt who has grain, they hear. And so uh, Joseph, of course, recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. This is one of those problems in the text uh, that later interpreters like Philo or John Chrysostom uh, will say, why didn't they recognize him? Why is it that Joseph can recognize them, but they can't recognize him? And there are a number of possibilities. One is uh, the grief uh, that they're facing or the famine that they're facing, or uh, divine providence keeps them from seeing Joseph for who he really is. Uh, but uh, for whatever reason, the brothers don't recognize Joseph. And this goes on for several chapters, right, where they don't recognize who Joseph is. Um, Joseph makes his brothers uh, pass a number of tests, if you'll remember. And so the first is uh, that when they first come to him, he thinks that they're spies. He accuses them of being spies, and he says, uh, to prove that you're not spies, you need to bring me your youngest brother, Benjamin. I want to meet this Benjamin character uh, so that I can know that you're telling me the truth. And so they have to leave some of the brothers behind in prison to go back to get Benjamin from Jacob. And of course, Jacob is distraught about losing his now only youngest son. Uh, after losing Joseph, he's afraid that he'll also lose Benjamin. Eventually, Benjamin makes the trip back. Um, and uh, along the way, the brothers discover that the, the silver that they had used to pay for the grain has actually been returned to their bags, um, sort of as if they've stole the grain they fear, that they're going to be accused of stealing grain. Um, and so they come back, they meet with Joseph again, they bring Benjamin, um, and then, of course, Joseph frames Benjamin. As they're leaving again, as he sends them off, he tells his steward to put a silver cup in Benjamin's backpack, um, and then, you know, finds them on the way and says, how crazy are you guys that we've been so gracious to you and somebody stole this silver cup? And uh, the brothers say, well... Surely we haven't done this. And if anybody has, whoever's bag that it's found in will, will be a slave to you for the rest of their lives. Um, and they make this oath. And then, of course, it's found in Benjamin's bag, and uh, all of Jacob's fears are coming true that, that he's going to lose Benjamin, in fact. 
And the brothers go back and forth um, to sort of save Benjamin, uh, to sort of stand in place of Benjamin um, in this great reversal of the story of Joseph, right? That Joseph was sold into slavery. He was envied by his brothers. They were quick to get rid of him. And here with Benjamin years later, the brothers are doing everything they can to save their youngest brother. They're trying to put themselves in his place. They're trying to stand in his place. Um, and so uh, that's, that's the story um, uh, that, that uh, uh, at least initially, of J Joseph's interaction with his brothers. It's sort of an ambivalent story. As I read it, I'm like, why is he testing his brothers? Why is he putting them through this? Um, and again, uh, somebody like Philo would say, uh, he's doing it to make sure that their intentions are good. He's doing it to show that they actually have genuine remorse over what they did to him as a younger boy, as a 17-year-old. Um, and so eventually, uh, Joseph can't keep it up anymore. And so uh, Joseph uh, reveals his identity to them, right? Uh, so in Genesis 44, 33 through 34, it says, Now therefore, please let your servant remain as a, as a slave to my Lord in place of the boy, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? This is, this is the sort of the statement that breaks Joseph, because he sees of their brother's love and commitment, both to Benjamin and to their father, that they would, they would stand in place of, of Benjamin, uh, to, to deal with this punishment of slavery. And so uh, as, as a result of this, Joseph breaks. And he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do you not, and, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Sorry, the text here gets a little dark on the end, but is there anything that stands out to you about this sort of reflection on Joseph's part? It was God's plan. It was God's plan. Great. That was uh, part of the insightfulness that we talked about a few minutes ago. What else? That's a good one. Okay. All right. So this is the big reveal. And at this point, uh, they, now, they now know that Joseph is who he is, um, that he's sort of got up to this uh, incredible position of power in Egypt's kingdom. And then we see the aftermath, right, that um, uh, starts with the relocation. So this is an image of... of, of Jacob seeing Joseph as the sort of vice regent to Pharaoh. Um, and so eventually uh, the brothers of, of Joseph go back up to Canaan. They grab Jacob. They grab their, their, their gear, and they move down to Egypt. Um, and eventually they settle in, uh, in Egypt, and uh, they become very well acquainted with the land of Egypt. Because of Joseph's connections, they sort of attain a, a great place in the um, in the new kingdom, uh, the family settles as shepherds in the land of Egypt. Joseph continues to sort of prosper as this administrator in Pharaoh's court. And eventually, uh, Jacob blesses his sons, dies, and he's buried. Um, and they, they 
uh, actually move his bones back up to Canaan. Also in this point, we, we have uh, what seems to be the reconciliation finally after eight chapters of, of strife between the brothers. Um, and here is the text where we see that. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong that they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of God of your father. Joseph uh, wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. So there's a number of things to, to point out that here, years later, after they've sort of been reconciled and they've been living together, the brothers are still afraid that as soon as their father dies, Joseph's sort of going to turn on them and, and uh, do something terrible to him, to them like, he did, like they did to him. And so um, this is that place where we see the tremendous forgiveness of Joseph, the, the desire to forgive and to say, you know what, you intended it for one thing. What you did was evil, but it worked out for good. Um, and so we see then that they, they experience finally this reconciliation, and uh, the story ends sort of happily ever after, right, uh, in, in, in our fairy tale world. Um, of course, uh, it doesn't stay good for the, the children of Israel for long. Um, uh, in the very next chapter in Exodus 1, we learn that that Pharaoh dies, and a new Pharaoh comes who knows not Joseph nor Joseph's family. And all he can see is that these Israelites are doing really good for themselves um, and keep having lots of children. Um, and so that then leads to the story of Israel's enslavement in Egypt, uh, which then sets the stage for Moses and the Exodus tradition, right, that you guys will hear about later uh, in the, the series. And so just sort of as we near the conclusion, I thought I would reflect briefly on the various ways that Joseph has been inter interpreted in Jewish and Christian traditions. Um, and this is simply a scratching of the surface. Uh, there would be a lot more that could be said, but, but here are a, a, th a few things to say. First, uh, in the biblical and extra-biblical traditions, um, Joseph is uh, often remembered because he's the father of a house or of a tribe, right? The tribe of Joseph, the household of Joseph. Um, we see that mentioned several times in the Old Testament and a few times in the New. We, we hear of, of Joseph, for example, in Psalm 105, where Joseph is held up as an agent of God's salvation, that, that this famine came, that the people of Israel faced extinction, and because of, J because of Joseph, they were saved. They experienced salvation through Joseph. Uh, so, uh, but Psalm 105 also holds up the fact that Joseph was a slave, he was a prisoner, and then he was a ruler. And that because of that experience, he was able to have this tremendous effect on the people of Israel. 
Uh, a very similar story of a recounting of Joseph's story occurs in Acts 7. Um, for those of you that know the book of Acts, uh, Acts 7 is uh, one of these sort of recounting of God's history, the history of God's people. Um, and it um, uh, tells the story of Joseph in Acts 7. He's mentioned briefly in Hebrews 11. Um, but then outside of these specific references to Joseph, uh, we can think about the way that the Joseph story sort of shaped later stories of wise courtiers or wise administrators in the courts of foreign kings. So you could think about, Joseph, or you could think about Esther, for example, um, or especially Daniel, who these are figures that um, are Israelites or Jews who are serving in the court of a foreign king. They're known for their wisdom and insight. They're known for their fidelity to God and their distinct sort of virtues. Um, the, the, another sort of theme in the history of interpretation is that Joseph is a virtuous man. He is a model philosopher, as Philo held up. Um, and uh, one of the odder ones, perhaps, uh, that, that I found is that he's held up as a, as a type of Christ, right? Joseph is a prefiguration of Jesus Christ. Um, and so this is from John Chrysostom, who was a bishop of Constantinople in the 4th and 5th centuries. And he says this about Joseph. On the other hand, it happened also as a type of things to come. The outlines of truth being sketched down ahead of time in a shadow, as Joseph went off to his brothers to visit them, to those who had no respect for brotherhood, nor for the reason of his coming, and who first intended to do away with him, and then sold him to foreigners, so too our Lord, in fidelity to his characteristic love, came to view, visit the human race, taking flesh of the same source as ours, and deigning to become our brother, he thus arrived among us. Paul, too, cries out in these words, it is not the condition of angels he takes to himself, but descent from Abraham, hence the need for him to become like his brothers in everything. He's here quoting Hebrews um, and referring to it as Paul, as was the case in the early church. But he goes on to say that the, the Jewish people didn't receive Christ, and he sees the, uh, the Jews as sort of uh, the brothers who sell Joseph into slavery and reject uh, the brotherhood of Joseph. Uh, or of Jesus. And then uh, John Chrysostom also finds uh, in, G in Joseph the virtues of a good man. He says, he says, basically, all that the New Testament has to say about the virtuous person can be fulfilled in Joseph. Um, and even goes to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and says, this is it. Joseph has fulfilled all of these things. So, uh, by way of conclusion, and then hopefully there'll be some time for questions, um, I offer just a few reflections. The first is the purpose or purposes of the story of Joseph. There is one obvious purpose of the story of Joseph, which is to get the people of Israel to Egypt. Uh, it connects Genesis and Exodus. Um, that's an obvious purpose. But there are other examples or, or other purposes for the story. One is it exemplifies the ideal administrator. Uh, what does it look like to be in a position of power. The story of Joseph illustrates that quite clearly. Um, in addition, uh, the purpose could be simply to illustrate virtue. What does it mean to be a virtuous person, especially a virtuous person living among non-Jewish people or non-Israelites uh, would be, would be one, of, one purpose. There are a number of theological themes that the story brings up that I think are important 
not only for the, the Old Testament, but for us as we uh, think about Scripture today. Uh, the obvious one is reconciliation. What does it take to experience reconciliation with brothers and sisters who uh, are at real enmity with one another? Um, the strife, the, the problems that they have are not, they're not downplayed. Uh, they're significant. And so uh, it takes time and it takes uh, these tests, which are odd, but eventually reconciliation happens. And so um, uh, wh- what, where do we see that in the story? We see it in the unwillingness of the brothers to lose Benjamin. We see this real change in their, their behavior. Um, perhaps a theological theme uh, to reflect on is the dangers of favoritism uh, that we see perhaps with Isaac uh, uh, and the Ishmael story, but we certainly see here. Um, and then as we heard at the very beginning of class, uh, the role of divine providence uh, is a big theological theme. That's something that we can take. Uh, when Joseph reflects back on his experience, he says, this was all God's doing. This was all in God's plans. Um, and so uh, those uh, who turn to the Bible for the notion of divine providence find fertile ground in the story of Joseph because of, of God's role in this. So I, I will close uh, and then open it up for questions with this happily ever after question mark. The story ends sort of everybody's happy. Um, uh, and perhaps it's just me, but, but I, I wonder. It, it, it maybe asks me more questions than it gives me answers. Um, I still don't understand Joseph's tests. Why does he do these tests to his brothers? Um, and how do I sort of reconcile that with uh, the reconciliation that happens at the very end of the story? Why not just be forgiving at the beginning? Um, uh, and uh, so that's one question. Um, the other question that I wonder about is, the theological interpretation that he gives, um, uh, the balance between injustice, naming tremendous injustice, and affirming God's providence. Um, to what degree are those good things? Um, and ca- how can those be dangerous in the church? Um, uh, to the point that injustice sort of gets washed under the rug, uh, doesn't get named as evil. Um, I think Joseph does a good job of naming it as evil, um, but I still wonder about that. And then, uh, of course, uh, happily ever after, we have to wonder about slavery in Egypt, uh, hard slavery in Egypt that comes about as a result of this. Um, and how does that relate to the divine providence that we see at work? Um, and of course, eventually God redeems the people of Israel, but not before they experience tremendous suffering under the hand of a, of a foreign king. Um, so that's uh, all that a New Testament scholar can give you on Joseph. Um, but I think we do have maybe a couple minutes for questions if there are. Uh, yes? There were 12 brothers. Why did only seven find out then? So this, this reflects a really interesting question, right? Because if you, if you follow the, the listing of the tribes of Israel um, throughout the Hebrew Bible, it's not always 12. In some places it's seven. In some places it's another number. Ryan would know them all off the top of his head, I'm sure. Um, so I don't, I don't know why it's only seven and not the whole. My, my hunch would be it has something to do with the inconsistency of uh, who counts as the tribe of, of Israel. Um, that, would be, that would be my explanation. You might have a better one. No? Seven is a whole number. Seven is a whole number, yes. Yeah. Seven is a, is a figurative number. That's right. That, that's a good one. Maybe somebody had to wash the sheet. Maybe somebody had to wash the sheet. That's right. Somebody had to, yeah. 
Somebody had to talk to the slave traders. Yeah. Was your question about or concern that the, all of the testing, maybe Joseph was testing himself yeah. to be able to accept their forgiveness for yeah. him being able to forgive it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, I think that's, that's one of those... Uh, there's so much in the Joseph story that illustrates what I like to talk about as the profundity of Scripture, that it is this, this book that we can just come back to again and again and find uh, a surplus of meaning. And that's certainly one of those ways where the text maybe doesn't say it explicitly, but we can totally make sense of it that way, that, no, it took these, you know, so maybe he wasn't ready to forgive them at the beginning. And it took sort of these, all right, I'm going to mess with my brothers a little bit before he got to reconciliation. And there's a part of that that seems to ring true with my experience of hardship and strife and enmity and all of that. So, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, this is geography. What kind of a distance are we talking about going from the home in Canaan back and forth to Egypt? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I can't get from my house to first press without my GPS. So, um, so I, I can, I, I'm sure I can find a resource that will answer that question to you. I, I think I don't even want to, I don't even want to guess because I'll be so far off. Um, but I can figure it out. Or Wikipedia, somebody's already on their phone figuring it out, I'm sure. Yeah. Why do you ignore Joseph's ability to go back to Jacob when he had the power to relieve Jacob's grief of his loss? Yeah. Oh, that's a tremendous question, right? That uh, why wait so long? Uh, and, uh, and he... At this point, at least by the time that he's become uh, second in command, he could have sort of called back for Israel. Um, again, I don't know. I don't think the text gives us a good answer. Um, but, but I personally, I think, you know, if, if, you, if you think your family thinks you're dead and they've, they've expressed no interest in finding you or, or reaching out to you, I don't know why I would go seeking my father uh, after that. Um, I think... Perhaps a, a really terrible analogy um, would be um, adoptive, adoptive parents and birth parents. Uh, with, with, you know, some, some families, some kids who have been adopted are profoundly interested in finding their birth parents, and some are not at all. Um, and so I wonder if, if that has something to do with the, the willingness or unwillingness of, of Joseph to go after it. But I don't, I don't know. It's, a, it's one of those you know, strange questions in the text that I think we should ponder. Um, but I don't know if we, we have a one answer. Yeah. If I'm understanding correctly, the, the is the question about uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think if I'm understanding the, the so he, he does experience uh, this administration over the the sort of the, the prisoners. I am not familiar with the sort of the res or the insurrection or the, the struggle inside, but yeah, okay. Okay, okay. Yeah, so he proved it in that way. Okay. Yeah. us of the story here, he completely glosses over the fact that his brothers have snookered him. In other words, they haven't heard from their dad that the dad wants no. Joseph, you know, they made it up. Yeah. Right? So in other words, they're back to scheming again, yeah. which is the sinful issue. And Joseph, if he's so close to God, needs to be able to say, my brothers, yes, but let's look at this first. Are you really saying the truth? If he's that open to inspiration. So it's, it's like, I don't know, it, it gives me just sort of a bad taste about and this is, something that, that was cherished before. Yeah, and this is, I think, uh, you know, if you, yeah, and that's, I think, I think that's what it comes down to. I think that one, one of the things you learn, especially when you read the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, Genesis in particular, is that, uh, often characters don't just wash out good and evil, you know, black and white. They're often more complex than that. So the brothers in this great moment of reconciliation are kind of scheming still. And, and in that regard, they are, they're not entirely redeemed. Um, and maybe that's just to accentuate the goodness of Joseph. But it is at least a sort of a problem that, that it's not fully resolved. Um, but even after Jacob dies, they're still... They're still trying to manipulate their way um, rather than experiencing authentic relationship with their, their, their brother who, is, who has demonstrated tremendous mercy and forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I forgot to mention uh, in the, the interpretation that uh, there is an entire surah in the Quran devoted to Joseph, if you're interested in this. Uh, Surah 12 is uh, to Joseph, and uh, it is some interesting interpretation of the story, right? Um, uh, Joseph's brothers are even more scheming than that, um, and Joseph's uh, father is aware of their uh, desire to hand him over, and they're in conversation about that, and there's a greater emphasis on, not surprisingly, Joseph's uh, resistance to Potiphar's wife, and in fact, other women sort of make passes at him, and so... Uh, it's great. It's fascinating if you, if you have an afternoon to read it. Um, I think we're fresh out of time. Um, so, uh, yes, we are. Sorry. Hurry now to worship. Thank you. <laughs>